We have a running hypothesis that technology will disrupt and reshape domestic work. That was Palak Shah, and I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This is a podcast about what people call the gig economy, about platforms that match workers with people wanting on-demand services. But as we've discussed, on-demand, informal, precarious jobs are frankly the oldest forms of work. What's new is the way in which platforms, algorithms, and big data are being used to control even the world's most vulnerable workers, like domestic workers. So far this season, we've talked to domestic worker organizers. We've talked to researchers who are exposing the ways in which tech and platforms are being used to control and manipulate workers. And we talked to an ethical businessman who showed us how, in the end, people who run platforms have a choice about how they're using technology. This episode, we'll hear from advocates who think there's no need to wait for bosses to do the right thing. Palak Shah is among those who see opportunities for worker organizations to take control of platforms and big data and use them for everyone's benefit. She's in New York City and works with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, or NDWA. And she's a pioneer in a new initiative that NDWA has launched called NDWA Labs. The labs is an innovation container for us to try different strategies and methods that complement the bread and butter strategies of traditional social movements. And my job is to to run that. (laughs) NDWA has been organizing U.S. domestic workers for many years. Pollock described what an uphill struggle it's been and why the organization thinks tech is an opportunity and not a curse. Take any U.S. city. And there is no common single place where all domestic workers come to work. There's no centralized list or registry of the homes that are workplaces. And you could have, say, half a million domestic workers in a large city like New York, and likely two to three million homes that are workplaces. And nobody knows where any of that activity is happening. And so what's very interesting about technology players is a level of unprecedented aggregation of both workers and employers, domestic employers, through digital platforms. That is an incredible opportunity, right? That's an incredible opportunity because, to be honest, our best strategies for organizing domestic workers prior to the internet was literally to go and stand in parks or stand in front of libraries, hoping to catch domestic workers as they were going about their workday. And that has been the difficult organizing condition for a long time in this country. And this is not just about the technology platforms, but this is about the Internet and all the ways in which the Internet connects us. Pollock's observation tracked with something I had been hearing from organizers around the world. Workers who didn't have a formal workplace were finding each other on WhatsApp groups or Facebook groups. Organizers like Myrtle Whipboy in South Africa, you might remember her from episode one, They were finding they needed to get online to get organized. Let's hear how Pollock and her colleagues put this together with the big data that the platforms are collecting. Now, the question is who controls all of that aggregation? And at this point, the fact that all of that is happening in technology companies doesn't necessarily benefit social movements unless we engage in our own aggregation, right? We use technology to aggregate workers and employers ourselves. I asked Pollock to help us connect the dots on aggregating data and organizing. What I'm pointing to is the unprecedented level of aggregation of workers that is happening on the internet. 
that doesn't automatically translate to trust and it doesn't automatically translate to power. But being able to find workers at a relative ease and scale is going to be an important factor because we don't live in a world of unlimited resources for organizing. And so the faster and better and um, at greater scale that we can come into contact with workers who are extremely isolated and many are working in the shadows, many are living in the shadows. And those are, those remain the core challenges. And what we see is millions of domestic workers having profiles on a company like care.com, tens of thousands working through apps like Handy and TaskRabbit, tens of thousands, which if you think about an organizer going to a library, like you're not going to get to tens of thousands, even if you're doing that for five years. Although domestic employers have always had offline and online way more power than domestic worker. Now you've got this third party, this uh, platform sitting in the middle that has more power than everybody involved. NDWA's light bulb moment was realizing that platforms have more power than their clients. Could they be used to change employer behavior toward domestic workers? Pollock and her colleagues decided to test their ideas with a very simple initiative, a fair care pledge. They convinced a major care work platform, Care.com, to make the pledge available and tracked the results. I asked her how it worked. You're posting a job and it's going to say to you, here's uh, the fair care pledge. Here is like an education step in the process of posting your job. Now, in this very initial pilot, this was our first foray into understanding even how platforms work, what a group like ours can do with a company like that, how do we're such vastly different entities, even in a a small pilot. 200,000 employers took the fair care pledge. I'm just pausing to repeat that. This simple pilot, just making a pledge available online, reached 200,000 employers. Let's hear more. Now, did anything change? Did anything, like, how do we know that actually makes a difference? And all of that is completely valid. And I myself, I'm skeptical about pledges. But that wasn't really the experiment. The experiment was, what is the reach? of these platforms, because I can tell you that finding 200,000 domestic employers in the wild west of the internet and just the domestic work labor markets would be a massive endeavor. So what we learned through that was like, wow, like this is pretty tight and controlled and aggregated. And the, the question then that comes from that is, okay, this is actually really interesting terrain. What do we want and how do we get that to happen? Pollock and her colleagues realized that what they had found was useful. They could reach employers at scale, but they needed to understand how to harness this. The question is, how are we going to actually make the interventions that are needed? What gets solved through regulatory and policy intervention? What gets solved through campaigning? What gets solved through workers being organized? So their next experiment was their own platform. It's called Aaliyah. And Pollock told me how they've been adapting and evolving it as they learn from the data. I asked her just to give us a snapshot of how it's been working up till now. Aaliyah is a platform um, that we built in-house by domestic workers for domestic workers that allows for a domestic worker, say a cleaner who has 15 employers or 15 homes that she cleans over the course of the week or the month. And each one of those employers can pay a small micro contribution towards her benefits that all gets aggregated into a single account. Now, this is obviously very different than the way that the traditional safety net function, which has been primarily built around the fact that a worker will work all of her 40 hours, if not more, for a single employer. 
many domestic workers don't have access anyway for a whole bunch of reasons that we've discussed. Aaliyah allows for the benefits to stay with the worker and for each employer, if she has 30 or 40 or 50 over the course of the month to pay their fair share into a single account, thus in a way seeking to mimic what you might get if you worked all of your hours in a job that provided benefits. How would a responsible employer access and actually use Aaliyah? You would go to www.myaliyah.org. You would sign up. It takes literally three steps. It's super easy. And then you would invite your cleaner. You could talk to your cleaner about it ahead of time so she knows that she's going to get a text from the platform. Or you could just simply input her phone number and she would get an invitation from the platform. Somebody would call her from our customer service team to talk to her about what the program is and how she can then go about inviting all of her other employers and thus grow her you know, monthly contributions from employers who choose to participate. I reflected on some of what we've been hearing from experts around the world about conditions for domestic and care workers, the long history of exploitation and the lack of any protections, and the systemic failure in even the most advanced economies to create the kind of care infrastructure we need. Aliyah sounds so simple. It's just an easy way for a good employer to support their workers' benefits. But is it more than that? Could Aliyah be a game changer? Let's hear more from Pollock. So Aliyah is a beta of a solution and a demonstration on how can we actually build a safety net for workers who have 50 employers in the course of a month versus one. Okay, now we have the kernels of a solution, a concept. How does that actually become institutionalized and how do we create structural change around that? Well, I'm happy to report that one of the main strategies of the domestic worker movement is that we pass what we call domestic worker bills of rights all around the country. We passed nine at the state level, two at the municipal level in the last 10 years. And the Philadelphia Municipal Bill of Rights had embedded in it a provision that mandated two things around paid time off. One, it created a right to prorated paid time off, meaning that every hour you work, regardless of where you work and how few hours you may work for an employer, you are entitled to a formulaic accrual of paid time off. And that the city of Philadelphia, through its Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, will establish and administrate a single system to accrue and tabulate all of the paid time off for domestic workers across their employers. This point in the interview with Pollock was my light bulb moment. Not only did the platform have information about multiple employers, it was demonstrating that governments could too. And this could make workers hidden in the shadows visible in ways that weren't about manipulating them. This data was showing how much they were contributing to economies and why we need more public policy to support them. And so we're moving into the territory where a set of ideas where we build and we experiment in the labs in a pilot or in a small scale way is now, okay, how does this look when it actually is the law? We'll be hearing more from Pollock about the back and forth between using technology and innovation in new ways and changing how policymakers address care work. But I was keen to understand if similar types of innovation were happening or could happen in other countries. So I went back to some friends in one of my favorite countries, South Africa. Here's Fairuz Mulaji. She's a lawyer who's been working closely with Myrtle's union, the South African Domestic Workers Union. She explains how, even as a legal advocate, she came to realize they needed a different business model. This was a phone interview with her, and the connection is sometimes spotty. 
work with domestic workers was largely based on the impact of legislation. The impact of legislation, it's not driven hard enough because organizations are not strong enough. Firuz described how she found out about a new movement around something called platform cooperatives. That's to say, platforms that aren't owned and controlled by venture capitalists. They're owned and controlled by workers. Drivers on ride-hailing platforms were the first to consider this model. Uber really took the country by storm around 16, maybe. And everyone was quite excited about that. At that stage, also, domestic workers were beginning to feel the need with all the talk about digitization, the future of work, into all the major discussions and debates. This was a discussion that they also foregrounded themselves in terms of organizing themselves as domestic workers. For the last three years or so, we've been working with domestic workers, facilitating the establishment of a platform, and they were quite excited. And originally we thought we could have the domestic work and ride railers in one platform, but that turned out to be way difficult, and we ended up the project on domestic and care. And it was through that engagement that we also stumbled in the Platform Cooperative Consortium when we realized that we were looking at alternative models for organizing by workers for workers. The brilliant part of this movement is that many countries already have a history of cooperative movements. I asked Firuz if this was the case in South Africa. Definitely not a new thing in South Africa. They have a long history and also we've got legislation, cooperative legislation and the principles of cooperativism. We thought that together with, with the domestic trade union would be a useful alternative model. Both gave domestic workers the platform to organize, which they could provide service in a professional way, in a way in which the business collectively. Let's go back to Pollock now. Did NDWA consider cooperatives a viable option in the United States? I very much admire the platform cooperative movement, and I've been around it since its inception. I think what I've said to them and what I've said in all of those spaces is platform cooperatives are an important demonstration of the kind of world we want to build. And at the same time, we live in the world that we're in. And that means we have got to figure out how to have our feet in both worlds. It seems there are lots of actually innovative ideas out there for how to use technology as a tool to build alternatives to the exploitative platform business model. So far in this episode, we've heard about the Fair Care Pledge and about Aaliyah. We've heard about experimental work in South Africa to set up a platform owned and controlled by a domestic workers union. Pollock also highlighted a simple problem that their platform, Aaliyah, is seeking to fix. The fact that most domestic workers have no safety net, no sick days, and no benefits. Could this also work in South Africa? Let's meet Abigail Hunt. Abigail is a researcher with the Overseas Development Institute and has also spent a lot of time in South Africa, as well as other developing countries, looking at exactly this question. I think for me, how to think about this question always has to come back to what was the starting point before the entry of the platform. 
So in country contexts like Kenya, and there were many others where domestic workers were operating in the absence of uh, labour regulation and access to uh, social protections, the arrival of the platform can in some ways be seen as an incremental step towards um, improving working conditions because it's helping them to, for the first time in some cases, have a track of how many hours they've worked, what they've earned for that work. So, So that's one aspect. Sometimes the design of these systems is really difficult to reconcile with the gig model. Domestic workers have to work a certain amount of hours a week for one employer, for that employer to have to make the contributions to the Social Security Fund on their behalf. And this is a real challenge because they're often working a few hours, but for many households. So it's not that they're not over a week sometimes making the total minimum number of hours, it's that it's dispersed between households, so they're not qualifying under the system. Abigail and her colleague Emma Salmon wrote a paper about how policymakers can use platforms to protect workers who have never had adequate protections. I asked her whether she was seeing any real-life applications of their ideas. There's a great example in Indonesia where Gojek a couple of years ago started working with the government bureau to submit records of the hours that drivers were working and therefore calculate contributions and therefore entitlement through the insurance system. So that's precisely an example of where, for the first time, some of these previously very informal workers have had a track of their earnings and therefore that's been able to be fed into public systems and help expand their entitlement to protections. From there, our conversation turned to something I discussed with organizers like Tembi in episode one, how tech is leading workers who were never organized to communicate and start to act collectively. Kenya and South Africa, domestic workers were traditionally very isolated, literally in many cases hidden behind the closed doors of a household and subject to all kinds of abuse and exploitation because they were isolated and and hidden. Now, the platform model doesn't necessarily inherently change that in terms of where the work takes place, of course, because it's still taking place in the household. But in some cases, the platforms themselves have actively supported workers uh, to, to kind of break down that isolation. So if we give the example of platform in South Africa, as a means to facilitate communications with workers about the company and and so on, they put the workers in this kind of huge WhatsApp group. Uh, The company remained in that. And of course, very quickly, the workers realised the company were there, but what a great opportunity for us to take this into another group. So of course, immediately they all set up their own shadow WhatsApp groups, often divided into, you know, different subgroups of workers and so on. And they've become this incredible kind of resource and, and site of mutual support between workers. So we heard stories of quite large groups of workers who were helping each other day to day with you know, challenges with clients. And we heard how, in some cases, they would often mediate between themselves or, or chat between themselves about how to sort this thing out without necessarily going to the company. Uh, there's actually been certain steps, for example, there's one company in South Africa that's recognized a kind of worker dialogue forum. So for me, that's that's one of the real big positive things that's come out of this digital way of organizing labor. What Abigail said was so similar to what I've heard from workers and advocates all over the world. Let's go back to Pollock. She and her NDWA colleagues had another aha moment on this subject, which she describes. We started to really think about how can all of these millions of domestic workers easily connect and be in relationship with the National Domestic Workers Alliance and our affiliates across the country. And we were doing a marketing experiment for Aaliyah, where we were trying to figure out if there was a way to use Facebook to educate employers and workers about the program and playing around with Facebook Messenger. So the marketing experiment was a total failure. (laughs) Like it just didn't work at all. But in the process, 
we stumbled onto a mechanism for building an automated chatbot in Facebook. And this was just one of those accidental discoveries. And we started saying, hey, this isn't really a great medium for marketing, but this is turning into a really fruitful way to talk to workers at scale. So this started with zero workers subscribed to our La Alianza chatbot maybe 18 months to two years ago. We're at over a couple hundred thousand domestic workers who are talking. We have a very small team that is engaging with workers on a daily basis. We've created a whole series of news content that we pass out. It's all news about domestic workers. The chatbot, all of the content, all of the language, all of the articles, everything is in Spanish. And what we're learning and hearing is that they greatly appreciate and enjoy all of the content and the interaction. Around the world, even the world's most vulnerable workers are having to get plugged into the digital economy in order to find their next gigs. This means that worldwide, more and more people in isolated and vulnerable forms of work, like domestic work, are on the grid. And as they learn to use platforms to find jobs, they are also learning to use them to find each other. Organizers and advocates like Palak and Fairuz and others around the world are starting to turn the tables on how we are using platforms in big data. They're realizing that worker data doesn't just need to be used to manipulate workers and optimize profits. It can be used by governments to inform sensible public policy. And it can be used by worker organizations to develop their own business models, such as worker-owned platform cooperatives. In short, if put in the hands of worker organizations, citizen groups, and responsible governments, technology can be a game changer for one of the most vulnerable categories of workers in the world. We still have a long way to go to make that a reality. And while we wrap up this episode of The Gig, our story is going to take some unexpected turns in the next and final episode for this season titled, Who's the Fairest? For today, though, I'd like to give Pollock the final word. From the perspective of domestic work, it's neither all good, it's obviously not all bad, but what we can expect is that without a major intervention, all of the equality, inequality, and inequity that we experience in the domestic work markets offline will simply continue online and be amplified at great scale and with great speed if we don't figure out how we want uh, to change that and shift that. I'm Bama Athrea, and you've been listening to The Gig. My producer is Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab. You can support us by visiting our page on Anchor FM. That page is anchor.fm backslash the gig dash podcast. You can find our previous episodes there too. The Gig is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. To check out more shows on topics like this one, just visit laborradionetwork.org.